You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Psalm 46, beginning with the title, let me read it to us. Perhaps you'll find some familiar verses. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth and breaks the bows and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. In 1517, a young Catholic monk had been studying scriptures for quite some time and had been making notes. And those notes that he was making were notes that he identified as discrepancies between what he found in scripture and what he observed to be the teaching and the practice of the Catholic Church. And young Martin Luther realized he was at a crossroads. A crossroads where he could continue to keep silent or he could speak up. And so he chose the latter and compiled 95 theses. 95 statements of Catholic contradiction with what the Bible said and need for the Catholic Church to reform. Now that spark produced a firestorm. And over the next Years of his life, his life was filled with instability. Instability that ranged everywhere from false accusations to threats on his life of being burnt at the stake as a heretic. The days were unstable, the weeks were unstable, the months were unstable, and when things were extremely volatile, Historians tell us that he would turn to his co-laborer in ministry, Philip Melanchthon, and say, listen, Philip, we must sing the 46th Psalm. As they would rehearse that 46th Psalm, it actually produced a hymn that we're all familiar with, A Mighty Fortress. The 46th Psalm was a resource For Luther and Melanchthon to be able to find stability during times of instability. And it isn't a blessing 
to know that the saints of all of church history experienced instability. Isn't it great to know that the resources that they access to get stable in their times of instability are accessible to us like Psalm 46? Psalm 46, as you heard me read in the title, is written to the choir master by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are a line of Jews that were especially talented as musicians, but were also brilliant theologians. So every psalm that these sons of Korah wrote are not just intended to be musically skilled, but also teach strong theology. And Psalm 46 is no different. Most scholars believe that Psalm 46 was written during the time when Assyria was attacking Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. 185,000 soldiers and chariots surrounding the walls of Jerusalem. What would happen? A time of instability for the sons of Korah. But a psalm of stability. So how does a psalm that encouraged Luther and Melanchthon back in the 1500s, how can a psalm that had a historical context with which most of us are not experienced, serve to impact our lives. Serve to impact you and your anticipation of the work week ahead. Serve to impact you as you prepare for your week of school. Serve you as a parent who walks by the empty room of your daughter who is now at school. Serve you who are ministering to aging parents serve you who are trying to figure out how to process the dumpster fire that is our U.S. economy and politics. Whatever your life is and the instability you are experiencing, this psalm reminds us of the big idea in your notes. And that is that the patterns of the Word of God and of history and of your life serve to provide a pathway to true stability. All of us experience in our lives instability, and so this psalm gives us the pathway to true stability. So the question I want to ask you and invite you to answer as we complete this study is, where are you putting your trust? And you heard me read these words that are out to the right of most of your English Bibles in italics, selah. It's a marker to invite the reader to take a breath and consider what has just been said. There are three of them, so three points in this outline that all center around a verb that occurs three times, which is to totter or to be unstable. The first one, as we invite our hearts and minds to focus on trusting the true source of stability, is to remember this as creation totters. Remember the true source of stability as creation's totters. Verse 1 says, God. Do you see that word? Would you look at the text and see the first word that occurs in verse 1 that is a very important word, but one that we throw around very flippantly in our culture today. We speak very flippantly of this God. 
We speak very generally of this God. We use a phrase like, oh my God, and may it be said at Ascend Church that we don't do that. Unless you are invoking the name of God in worship, unless you are recognizing his sovereign character in something in your life, let's not say, oh my God. But it's not just flippant in general in our society today. It was in the ancient time. The word in Hebrew is Elohim. It's simply the plural form of the singular word El, which means God. In the ancient world, used this Elohim flippantly. Every nation had their Elohim. Every nation had their gods, almost like sports mascots. So you had the Elohim of Egypt, the Elohim of Philistia, the Elohim of Assyria and Babylon, and they used this flippantly. But what the author is reminding us is who our Elohim actually is. And our Elohim is introduced... In the first verse of Scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Elohim. He created the universe, not because he had big muscles or was somehow able to assemble a mighty army of skilled craftsmen. He was able to create this entire universe because Elohim just speaks and things exist. Not only did he create the universe, Elohim created a unique being called humanity, tasked them with being prophets, priests, and kings to carry out his standards and his design to fill the earth and advance his kingdom. And so passionate was he about this task and this mission that when there was one family left who was actually fulfilling this mission... He decided to destroy the rest of the earth and give humanity a second chance. So passionate is God, Elohim, about this mission that when society anchored in the east and did not fulfill the mission, he chose one man and one nation to produce what would be his son who became human, who would be the perfect priest, prophet, and king. So that you, everyone united with him by faith has hope and can place their trust in true stability. That's the God that we read in the first word of Psalm 46, Elohim. Now before we get to the rest of verse 1, let me draw your attention to verse 2. And here's where we begin to see instability. Look at what it says, though the earth gives way. Literally, it means though the earth changes or transitions, or tomorrow isn't the same as it was today. Then he uses the illustration of mountains. Mountains are majestic, and they seem to be immovable, and yet how many times have we seen in the news that there have been landslides as a result of storms, or massive fires as a result of lightning strikes, or when earthquakes occur? The mountains shake. Then he uses the illustration of the seas, and the seas also are majestic. The seas cannot be tamed, and yet we are reminded that they are also chaotic. What the author is doing is drawing our attention to creation and reminding us that creation, literally, as we read the word mountains be moved, 
It literally translates to totter in verse 6 and reminds us that it is unstable. Creation is unstable. If it's hot today, it may be cold tomorrow. If it's dry today, it may be rainy tomorrow. And throughout history, you can look at the patterns where tsunamis have killed thousands, where earthquakes have killed thousands. In fact, just look at the news over the last couple weeks, and we've seen where fires have killed hundreds, and we know that creation changes. In my own lifetime, I've experienced the earthquake of Northridge in 1994. And in fact, this last week, we were driving home from dropping Meg off for the final time. We all had those extra goodbyes, but this was the final one. And Sally and I, one moment, are crying, and the next moment can only see feet in front of us as we experience 70-plus mile-an-hour winds and trees that were hurling over as a massive dust storm just sprung up there in Phoenix. And I'm reminded, even in reflecting on that, that creation changes. Creation totters. God has given us these patterns and reminders to serve as a contrast between what changes and what is truly stable. Back to verse 1. God, Elohim, is our refuge. The word translates the word protection. Verse 1. He is our strength. Do you see it in the text? He is our strength. Not our buildings Not our engineering, not our technology, not our warning systems, not our wealth, not our possessions, not our strategies. It is Elohim who is our strength. And then it says in verse 1, he is a very present, it means near proximity. That is so important, isn't it? I'm reminded that there's a certain comfort when our daughters are in our house, that we can provide protection to them because of proximity. When my daughter is 18 hours away, two and a half hours by plane, there's not that proximity, and now all of a sudden there's instability. But the psalmist reminds us that the true source of stability, Elohim, is in near proximity, and that really drives us toward The contrast with creation, and that is God's presence is stability. And so, beloved, if you have and acknowledge God's presence in your life, then verse 2 is for you. Therefore, do you see it in the text? We will not what? Fear. The word is yurah. It can be used either positively or negatively. And what the psalmist is saying in verse 2 is, based on his reflection of God, his character, and his presence, he is resolved. So even if creation changes, and you can imagine here the, the son of Korah is speaking and describing the furniture of God's plan for the end times in a dimly lit room. He doesn't understand all of the ramifications, but he knows that one day mountains will be hurled into the sea. One day the earth will change, and he doesn't quite fully comprehend it, but he's anticipating the future, looking back at the past and recognizing the patterns of life are that creation changes, and yet if God's presence is with us, and if we are in relationship with him, we are resolved not to fear. 
The word yirah has a negative connotation in Scripture. That means to be crippled or debilitated or let anxiety drive your train. Do any of you have a past event or a present reality or a future anticipation that has the potential of debilitating you? The mere thought of it causes you to have anxiety, to have emotions that begin to overwhelm you. The psalmist says, if you can hold on to this true source of stability, you will not experience this negative aspect of Yerah, but you will instead experience the positive aspect of Yerah, which is to worship, to have confidence, to conquer. See, the reminder of the tottering of creation reminds us that all we have to do is look at the past, look at the present, look at creation to see that it is constantly changing. But the true source of stability is our Elohim, our refuge, our strength, who is in near proximity during all times of trouble. Selah, take a breath. Number two, remember, as cities totter, the true source of stability. Remember, as cities totter, the true source of stability. And I'm finding this concept of cities tottering in verse 6. Look at what it says. The kingdoms totter. Do you see it in the text? The kingdoms are unstable. The world system is unstable. What he's describing here is the governments, the military, the economy of the world system is unstable. And and that's true, isn't it? I mean, just look at the United States. But even before we get to the United States, look at world history. Look at the great kingdoms of the world. Look at how the kingdoms of the world have appeared to be so strong, to be appearing to to never have any instability, and yet they've crumbled. Look at the Roman Empire. Look at the Greek Empire. Look at the Medes and the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Go, Go all throughout history. You see where empires have risen, have fallen, and usually the reason for that is because some weakness in one or more of these three categories, leadership, military, or the economy. As I reflect on the United States, I see a weakness in leadership. We have two primary political parties. One is not even in the same atmosphere as the standards of God. That political party calls what God calls good, they call it evil. What God calls evil, they call it good. That's one political party, but the other political party can't put our act together standing for righteousness. We're so pragmatic and trying to gain a little bit of ground that we're afraid to stand up and say what is good and what is evil. There's a weakness in the leadership of the United States. There's also a weakness in the military of the United States. We have an admiral who is transgender. Someone who is publicly declaring the opposite of the standard that God has established. We have a military that negotiates with 
foreign nations to release international criminals so that we can have an athlete who transported marijuana be released. Yes, we have incredible technology. Yes, we have incredible training. We have an incredible track record. But our military is showing signs of biblical weakness. We have a weak economy, don't we? All you have to do is drive by a gas station. Phoenix gas is $4.50 per gallon. These are signs in the world system that kingdoms totter. And and why do they totter? Well, look at verse 6. It's because of the first phrase, the nations rage. The nations, Psalm 2 says, are assembling against the Lord and against his anointed by pursuing their own desires, by pursuing their own authority, by pursuing the habel, the vanity that the earth offers. That's what the nations and the kingdoms are doing. The psalmist affirms this. The point is, is that kingdoms, the governments, the militaries, the economics totter. It reminds us also, and this is where the concept of cities comes in, that there are really only two cities in the world. The first city is introduced to us in verse 4. The, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you see it in the text? That's where I got this concept of city. What is the city of God? Well, as you look at the text, you might be tempted to say, well, it's describing Jerusalem. And even the son of Korah might have thought that it was Jerusalem. And that makes sense as we think about the historical context when this was written. But, but, but as we look at the entire Bible, I, I would say to you, this is not Jerusalem. One of the reasons I can tell you that is there's no river in Jerusalem. There aren't any streams in Jerusalem, and archaeologists tell us that there might have been ancient streams in Jerusalem. But when we look at Genesis to Revelation and see what this is describing, verse 5, God is in the midst of her, that this is not describing a literal river, it's not describing literal streams, it's describing what differentiates the city of God from the city of man. So let me focus on the city of man just for a moment And then we'll get back to the city of God. The city of man, here's a quote, is any people group committed to autonomy and authority of human reasoning and the promotion of the glory of man rather than the glory of God. This is the city of God. And really, we're introduced to it back in Genesis 4, aren't we? When Cain killed Abel, he settled in a land and built a city instead of fulfilling what Genesis 1 26 through 28 says, is the mandate for every human being to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. We see another city in Genesis 11 where the people after the flood, instead of filling the earth with the glory of God, settled, built a city they called Babel to make a name for themselves, the autonomy and authority of self. We see this continue with the city of Nineveh. We see it continue with the city of Babylon. We see it continue in the empires of Assyria and and Babylon and, and Rome. 
But what we learn as we study the New Testament is that this is always the spiritual reality of the city of God. People getting together to say, we have autonomy, we have authority, we have the right to establish what is right, what is wrong, what the standards are to advance the glory of self rather than the glory of God. This is the city of man. That city constantly totters, doesn't it? constantly changing but there is a city of God the city of God is the place where God's presence is that's what the river whose streams make glad the city of God means he's using imagery that was found in Eden he's using imagery that will be found in Revelation 22 in the new kingdom and that is this river describes the presence of God In fact, listen to what G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim say. It describes the abundant life that flows from the presence of God. So what is the city of God? Here's a quote. God's presence relied upon by God's people to faithfully fulfill their roles as prophets, priests, and kings, courageously making disciples and advancing his kingdom. This is the city of God. May it be so in the patterns of your life. May it be so as people from our community come in and see Ascend Church that what they see is citizens of the city of God. What they see is being attracted to the presence of God. What they see is people who are imperfectly pursuing being prophets, priests, and kings and relying on the presence of God. And what is the presence of God? Well, it's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's individuals who are sinners who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, the cities of man totter. The kingdoms totter. The leadership, the military, the economy, it's never intended to be the source of stability, the source on which we place our trust. But it is intended to point us to the true source of stability, which is our Elohim, Selah. Number three, Remember, as coalitions taught her, the true source of stability. There's so many patterns in the word. There's so many patterns in history. There's so many patterns in our lives that contrast false stability with true stability. This is what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about. As Solomon has tried everything that life under the sun offers. He's tried academics unstable. He's tried addiction, unstable. He's tried careers. He's tried uh, possessions. He's tried women. He's tried entertainment. He's tried everything the world says is stable, and he's come to the conclusion, vanity, habel, unstable. The psalmist reminds us that it's not just creation It's not just the world system. It's also groups of people assembling together to confront the Lord and his anointed. Around 701 B.C., there was a solitary figure standing just outside the gates of Jerusalem. 
This was an officer from the Assyrian army who belted out the terms of surrender to the Jews that were sitting on the wall. Declaring to the Jews what they already knew. The data had been coming in for weeks and months of stronghold cities in Judah that had fallen one after the other to the army that was standing before them. And this official was shouting out the accounts of how nations and their Elohim had been unsuccessful in stopping this army. So why would Jerusalem think that their Elohim was any different? The Jewish officials on the wall attempted to negotiate, intended to argue, intended to strategize. But finally, the Assyrian official had exhausted them of all of their strategies, and they took the news back to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah reflected on the coalition that was before them, probably looked out and saw the dust that was in the air from the 185,000 soldiers and chariots knowing for certain that annihilation was before them, and Hezekiah face-planted. But then what would he do? You see, most of us would be confronted by something like this and would turn to strategies, would turn to spreadsheets, would turn to fight and fight to the death. That's what we do as Americans. And yet the sons of Korah provide for us the command and instruction for how to respond to these coalitions. Look at verse 10. Be still. You see it in the text? Be still. The word be still is an interesting one. It literally means to release something previously held. To abandon something previously held. I often thought of being still as though it meant to be silent, but listen to this quote. It is not a call to silence. It is not a call to meditation or to just be still. It is a call for nations to stop fighting and rebelling against the Lord. It is a call for God's people to stop their worrying and their fretting. Beloved, do you have something in your life that is producing worry? Do you have something from your past that when that memory is triggered, you can begin to feel your body tense up? You can begin to feel that emotion that is bubbling and, and tempting you to be overwhelmed, tempting you for the negative side of your raw to be derailed, to be debilitated. The psalmist is reminding us here to release that. To abandon the strategies of self. Abandon the strategies of using the tools of life under the sun. And get to a place of fully trusting and relying on the true source of stability. And and how do we do that? Well, look at the next command in verse 10. Know, 
You see it in the text. The word know in an ancient Near East context means to acknowledge someone is sovereign. Isn't that interesting? You know, we throw around this word a lot in Christianity. God is sovereign. But do we truly mean what it means? It's like what Inigo Mantoya said in Princess Bride. I do not think that word means what you think it means. The word sovereign means he is completely in control. The word sovereign means he is complete in his authority over all of the details of my life. The word sovereign means he has decreed from the beginning of time all of the events throughout history and he superintends them according to his will, his character, and for his glory. Do you know that? He continues to unpack this by saying, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And this is a biblical theology concept. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that God created the earth to proclaim his glory, to be able to just look at his creation and see the majesties of his character. And we can still do that in some places, not so much Olathe. But haven't you been to areas of the world where you see the mountains or you see the oceans You see the colors, and you can see the majesty of God, and yet all of that is still corrupted by sin, isn't it? God intended his creation to perfectly reflect his character, and one day it will. You can write down Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with his glory. You can write down Zechariah 9 and verse 10. The king who comes in humbly on a donkey will reign from sea to sea. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the ancient of days gives to the Son of Man an everlasting kingdom. There will be a day, beloved, even though the son of Korah didn't fully comprehend it, when God will be exalted on the earth. And then when we read in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Adam and Eve were designed to exercise dominion, kingly authority over the earth. They were intended to keep and watch the garden. That's priestly activity. Adam was intended to take what God had spoken to him and effectively communicate it to Eve and to all of their offspring, prophet, priest, and king. But humanity made a mess of that, didn't we? And we can continue to do so as we see wars and rumors of wars. But one day our God will be exalted among the nations. And there will be no more death. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more wars. How do we know this? Well, We know this by looking back at verse 8. Look at what it says. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Do you see it in the text? Behold the works of the Lord. Here's what this means. Read the Bible. That's what it means. You can write out to the side. Read the Bible. That's what behold the works of the Lord means. You can write out to the side. Look at the patterns of history. 
You can run out to the side, look at your own life and examine the patterns. This is what biblical theology is. I I love biblical theology because it has opened my eyes to understand that just like every great story, so the Bible shows us themes, themes and patterns that are intended to reveal the character of God, reveal the human condition, reveal his plan for redemptive history. Let me just give you a nugget. You ever notice in Genesis how every once in a while you see a man at a well and a woman that he meets that becomes his wife? You see anywhere in the New Testament where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is at a well and he meets a woman. You start to see there are patterns. Nothing is coincidence. Look at God's dwelling with man in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the church, and in the New Jerusalem. And you begin to see these patterns that are intended to reveal God's character, to reveal human condition, to reveal his plans for redemptive history. Listen to this. Every page of scripture is an invitation to behold the works of the Lord. Time and time again, the Lord has revealed his sovereign rule. Just read the Bible. And when you do, you will see that what God promises will come to pass. Verse 9, he makes wars Sabbath is literally what it says in the Hebrew. He makes wars cease. Isn't that interesting? What did the Jews stop doing on Sabbath? Work. The same concept is given here. But but the psalmist, again, speaking about furniture in a room that's very dimly lit knows that one day all wars, all bows, all chariots will be destroyed. There will be no more wars. He's actually talking about what we've been studying in Revelation, isn't he? Revelation 19, 1 through 5. We'll get there here in a few weeks. We're reminded that one day the patterns of all of history will come to an end. That's what the prophecies of the Bible are about. Isaiah is just like Revelation. If you ever study Isaiah, Isaiah is a fascinating book, but man, we can get lost in the oracles, can't we? We love chapters 36 and 37. That's the account of this official from Assyria and Hezekiah and the the wall. And we love that account because it's narrative and it's a story and it's gripping. But then we get to oracle after oracle, the oracle against Edom and Moab and Egypt and Philistia and Judah and Israel. And we're like, what? It's just like Revelation. It's showing us that the patterns of God's judgment and then another nation rising up and then God's judgment and another nation rising up will continue and will continue and will continue until Isaiah 24 through 26 say the same thing. John says in Revelation 21 is there will be a day when wars will cease. Same thing as Psalm 46. So as we look at the patterns of the word and of history and of our lives, may they point us to the true source of stability. Verse 11, the Lord of armies, literally in the Hebrew, is with us. The God of Jacob, as Luther and Melanchthon said, is our mighty fortress. You know, the rest of the story is that Hezekiah one day went to bed looking out at 185,000 soldiers and chariots, 
And the next day woke up and saw 185,000 dead bodies. The angel of the Lord came and intervened. But you know what's fascinating is just a few years later, Babylon was successful, breached the walls, destroyed the temple, patterns over and over and over. Here's my question to you as you bow your heads and close your eyes and prepare for the Lord's table. This is our opportunity to Selah one more time. As you look at the patterns of your life, what you're thinking about, what you're talking about, the priorities that you place in your life, the identity as you introduce yourself to someone and say, hello, my name is so-and-so, and this is my identity, where do you fill in the blank? Where are your patterns of stability and trust? Father, thank you for this amazing psalm and the context of the attack of the Assyrians on the walls of Jerusalem. Thank you for the story from church history of Luther and Melanchthon and their resolve that they gained from this psalm. And I pray that it will serve us as well to remember that God is our refuge and strength. Near in proximity in times of trouble. As a result, may we not negatively fear, but instead confidently and courageously trust in the true source of ability of stability and the only way we can do this is because of the remembrance of what was accomplished on the cross through Jesus Christ take take this time minister to our hearts and get us to a place where we as a congregation can with clean hands and pure hearts celebrate the remembrance of Christ's broken body and shed blood in Jesus name I pray